If she had poisoned her husband or her child, I wouldn't have been surprised. She was also a compulsive talker. Just listening to her tell me what to feed her four-year-old, when he should go to bed, what he was or was not allowed to do, and where she and her husband could be reached in case of an emergency, was a dizzying experience because every nugget of information was buried in an avalanche of words, between which not a breath was taken. Mr. Borkin and I love the theater, don't you? When I was 16, I starred in the school production of Little Women, and I played Joe. There are chocolate chip cookies in the cupboard, but don't eat any of the apple pie. When Mr. Borkin and I were dating, we used to pick apples at a farm near the university. My niece has been accepted at the State College in Albany. We'll be back no later than 11 o'clock. I think the new stoplight on Main Street is going to... And so on. Mr. Borkin, as could be expected, rarely said a word, and he never smiled. I have no recollection of what he looked like, but I remember that even when he was paying me at the end of the evening, I could look right into his face and not be 100% sure of what I was seeing, almost as if he was a Mr. Potato Head and someone kept switching the nose and ears on me. Mrs. Borkin had told me enough, or I'd listened at enough keyholes, to know that the reason there was so little furniture in the house was that they had played a game of brinkmanship with their credit and almost lost. Houses in Conversation, New York, where I grew up, are very expensive. Just think three-quarters of a million dollars as a starting point, and you'll have the price of an average Tudor or Colonial on a quarter-acre lot. The only reason my parents could afford to live there was that they had bought their house years ago, when most of our neighbors were farmers and most of our best friends were cows. And so the Borkins, after paying their mortgage, had little left over for incidentals like chairs, sofas, tables, lamps, heat, and electricity. Bradley's room was a small rectangle at the top of the stairs. Honestly, I think it was once a walk-in closet. He had a bed, a chest of drawers, and so on. But looking at it made you wish for the fantasy days of the 1950s, when children had cowboy patterns on their bedspreads and Lincoln log sets on the floor. He had a computer, of course, but no stuffed animals, no comic books, no worms and fuzzies, and there was that omnipresent dead goldfish in the den. The den, inanimate marine life notwithstanding, was the only room in the house I could tolerate because it had real furniture, which included a beat-up sofa with maple wood armrests and matching chairs, a coffee table on which were old issues of magazines about child-rearing, the aforementioned fish tank, a television that didn't work, a very full bookshelf, probably left over from the previous owner of the house, and a table lamp. Because I had just discovered Dostoevsky, I brought along a book to read after putting Bradley to bed. I was riveted by the intense characterization, the passionate interplay of personalities, and the involved plot. It wasn't until ten years later, last year, in fact, that I realized there was sex, too, in Dostoevsky. As with career choices, I am sometimes slow on the uptake. So I had tucked myself into a corner of the sofa, turned on the table lamp, and bent my head over a particularly exciting scene where Prince Mishkin was about to have another attack of brain fever. That's when I realized that either I was going blind at an astonishingly rapid rate, or the light in the room was inadequate to the task at hand. I stood up and peered down into the lampshade. What do you know, there was a measly 40-watt bulb inside. 
So I did what any avid reader would do under similar circumstances. I removed the shade, put the lamp on the floor so that the bulb was level with the book on my lap, and continued to read. I know, because I was told a thousand times, that I am very, very lucky to be alive, and I have no quarrel with that. I am very, very lucky. After I fell asleep, I must have moved a hand or a foot and somehow knocked over the lamp so that the bare bulb fell against a cushion of the sofa. I'll never know what it was that woke me up in time. Maybe Bradley calling out in his sleep. Maybe headlights of a rare car passing by that reflected in the window of the den. Maybe a dog barking or pickles squawking in that particularly strident parakeet way. But something woke me up before the fumes could overtake me. Whatever that something was, it propelled me into a state of instant awareness, and I had time to save both Bradley and myself before the sofa burst into flames. Obviously, the fire had been my fault. I had taken the lampshade off the lamp, I had fallen asleep, I had knocked the lamp over. And I didn't lie about it either, which had been a great temptation, after being excessively fussed over for having saved Bradley's life. My parents were not angry. They'd almost had heart attacks when they saw the fire engines pulling up across the street, but their evaluation of the situation after the dust settled was that the Borkins, living in a house they couldn't afford and subjecting me, the babysitter, to a cheap 40-watt light bulb, had brought the situation on themselves. I, on the other hand, felt guilty. I hadn't liked the Borkins, but it was their house. They had left me in charge of it, and I felt that I was ultimately responsible. So, as I found out later, did their insurance company. Chapter 2 I should have figured out what I wanted to be on the day that I first met Ike Blessing. He was what I wanted to be, but more about that much, much later. The aftermath of a fire is generally about as bewildering as surviving a car crash or witnessing the commotion of objects being hurled around with random violence during the tempest of a tornado. You're shocked. If you move at all, it's generally in response to something that somebody tells you to do. Check her for bruises. See if she needs oxygen. Get that blanket and put it around her shoulders. You aren't at all sure of what happened to precipitate the confusion, and you have no idea what's going on. The fire engines arrive. Your parents rush across the street. Someone, maybe the fire chief, asks you questions. Your mother brings Bradley to your home and puts him to bed. Your father, or maybe it's Mr. Tallman from the corner house, extracts from you the location of Mr. and Mrs. Borkin, whose house apparently is on fire. On fire? How can that be? Just a few minutes ago you were reading Dostoevsky. The Borkins return. Mrs. Borkin, the compulsive talker, is now compulsively talking hysterically. Mr. Borkin's face is deadpan. Possibly he's thinking that with the insurance money he'll receive, instead of repairing the damages to his house, he'll go out and buy a thick steak or a blonde with a pert nose and no vocal cords. A man who writes for the Conversation Bulletin, our weekly newspaper, comes up and asks me questions. I recognize him from the last tennis match I won at school. He took my picture then, and he takes one now as I stand huddled in a blanket I don't need by the flashing lights of a police car. And then, almost without transition, I wake up the next morning and it's over. How did I get from there to here? Was I really babysitting for the Borkins last night? 
Do they really live across the street? Did what I think happened really happen? I got dressed, went downstairs, and reassured my parents that I was quite all right and definitely capable of going to school that morning, to which they responded, There is no school, dear. It's Saturday. Then they proceeded to become involved with one or another of my multitude of siblings, and I went out the side door of our house. I could have gone out the front and been instantly confronted by the sight of the Borkins' house across the street, but I wasn't ready for that yet. If reality had to be faced, I wanted to sneak up on it. It's amazing how slowly I can walk when I try. I'd slept late that morning, and it was almost noon before I left the kitchen. I had considered myself an ultra-mature fifteen-year-old until about midnight of the day before. Now I felt young, inept, useless, and as if I would spend the rest of my life being pummeled by an ego-deflating and arbitrary fate. It's amazing how quickly a teenager can turn into a two-year-old when everything doesn't go her way. It took me about three years to cross the street, because it's difficult to walk across a slate path, down a flight of garden steps, over a patch of grass, down a curb, across a street, up a curb, and over another patch of grass, without once looking up. When I finished performing this inefficient combination of somnambulism and trespassing, I found myself on the sidewalk that intersected with the brick path that led to the Borkins' front door. The configuration of the house where I had babysat the night before was not complicated. Think of a loaf of bread, square off the corners, put a row of windows on the top floor, put a row of windows on the bottom floor, put a roof on top and a door in the middle. The den in which the fire started.